0: Welcome to Everything STEAM, I'm your host Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineer with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. Based on the sounds that you just heard, and the name of this episode, it's probably clear that this is all about amphibians. My guest and I will tackle evolution in the first segment just to get your feet wet and then we'll become more focused and discuss the evolution of amphibians. And then to round out the episode, my guest will be sharing a specific example of amphibian evolution that he is truly fond of. Now it's probably an appropriate time to introduce my guest star for this podcast, so please meet Dylan Jones. Dylan is a biologist and a science communicator with a passion for uncovering the secrets of biodiversity. His biology career has largely focused on the ecology of reptiles and amphibians, as well as understanding how and why species ranges change over time. As a science communicator, Dylan delves into topics such as wildlife conservation, evolutionary theory, and the incredible array of life on our planet. You can find him on Instagram under the handle at DylanTheBiologist. So now that you've been introduced to my guest star and the topic of this podcast, we're going to head into the first segment where we plan to discuss one of science's most accepted theories, the theory of evolution. Cheers. Hey, Dylan, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing pretty good. It was a world frog day yesterday, so I'm uh, pretty hopped up right now.
0: Great pun to start the podcast. I love it's that. all
1: downhill from here.
0: Uh, <laughs> that's pretty good, man. That's good. Um, I actually just got a used book. I got uh, Project Hail Mary. Very excited. Um, Matthew Broussard actually. I was hiking with him a couple weeks ago, hmm. and he was like, "If you haven't read this, you should." And I'm like, "Well, I've read The Martian." He's like, "Well, then you definitely need to read yeah. this book." So it just came in today. Really hype. Sick. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Also, um, apologies to the listeners or the I guess the watchers of YouTube out there. I uh, yeah, I'm I'm not using my normal equipment. I'm actually using my work laptop. Work don't kill me for this. Yes. <laughs> so it's not going to be the best in terms of sound quality, but we're here for it. Yeah, it
1: is what it is. Work is what yeah. you got.
0: Yeah, working with what we got. So this first segment, we're talking about evolution, mm-hmm. and I guess we could start on the broad sense because first of all physics, engineering, not a biologist, Mm -hmm. we got a biologist here. So Dylan, (laughs) run me through it, man. What is evolution? And then I can add some quirky things as we go.
1: Yeah, for sure. Evolution, I just define it as change over time. If, If we just start at that basic principle of it's change in an organism over some period of time, we often think of like natural selection or Darwin's finches all having different beak sizes on different islands because the seeds are, are different sizes and they need bigger beaks to crack bigger seeds, but that's just an example of change and it's over time and that's in a case of a morphological uh, morphologic character their their beak but it can also be something like their genes, it could be their behavior changing over time. so that's why I kind of put it all down and just if change over time depends on how you look at it. <laughs>
0: That's so true. It comes in in different flavors. You have the stuff that's going on with the DNA and then the stuff that you have after you do reproduce because you have the recombination and mutation that's dealing with the hereditary aspect. And then you then try to replicate that as much as possible, make a bunch of offspring. And then that's when natural selection occurs. So you get all of these crazy things going on. It could be climate toxins competition so much so many different things and um
1: yeah it's crazy in my specific focus it's biogeography i study how and why species are where they are today it's like like why are there so many amphibians down in costa rica like that's like a you know you actually pair that with millions of years of evolutionary history to get that answer so it's evolution can just be whatever you look at that that's what's cool about
0: it though yeah, it's extremely involved, and I guess especially with with what you do, I mean, you have to be very in tune to like geology and mm. you know geologic time too, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. That that was actually the most surprising thing is how much I've had to learn about uh, plate tectonics or uh, how mountain ranges form just to figure out of like you know why is that salamander looking that way? It's super super weird, <laughs> but oh, it, it's fun. I'm actually noticing now when I go out to places, I can much better take a guess at to what is that? And why did that form? Why do those mountains look like that? I don't know. It's, it's, it's cool.
0: Oh, most definitely. So I have a question for you. And I mm-hmm. think this is something that we really haven't touched on in the podcast. Mm-hmm. And there is a, I guess, I don't want to say it like this, but like there's like a tier in terms mm-hmm. of evolution, there's micro and macro. So maybe right. you can touch on that for the audience.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you'll hear uh, micro and macro evolution pretty often. And, Really, it comes down to that, that scale of time is usually how I lump them together, where microevolution is stuff that is happening uh, kind of in the last few thousand years. The classic example of the uh, the peppered moth turning black because of pollution during the industrial era. That's a classic example. The moths used to be mostly white, and now they're mostly black during that time. So that's like a good example of microevolution. It's not a new species. It's, it's no major change, but it's, it happened within a few generations. Macroevolution is the stuff that you'll hear that like, goes like millions of years over time. Uh, so this is like entire new species, entire new clades. It's like, when did the mammals split off from early reptiles and, and stuff like that? So, so that's like the macro evolution. That's when you start hearing words like Jurassic and like Paleozoic and all of those different epochs and eras that I think every biologist struggles to keep the order of, so.
0: <laughs> Definitely. I think one way, I guess... Correct me if I'm wrong, that people can also use the distinction between micro and macro is that in terms of microevolution, everything can reproduce with one another. But mm-hmm. then the macro is where you get to a point where you really can't intermingle.
1: Yeah, this is kind of like the fun thing and the frustrated thing about evolution is that everything <laughs> is intertwined. So it's like like time is usually pretty directly correlated to how different two things are. I mean, the difference between organisms that haven't been able to mate for 10,000 years is comparably small to a set of organisms that hasn't been able to mate for 300 million years. You know, there's a wide variety of differences there. Uh, you know, that that's like the difference between a, a tiger and a, a lion versus a tree and a fish. You know, it's, it's a huge difference. It's a huge difference.
0: <laughs> now that makes sense. So, OK, we kind of covered some some broad definitions so far, and there are some terms out there that linger, you know, and are used colloquially. I have one that kind of gets not on my nerves, but I think mm-hmm. it's just people that don't really even know the surface level information about mm-hmm. evolution. And maybe we can kind yeah. of help those people out here. One of those is de evolution. Mm. Please, please enlighten us.
1: So the concept of de evolution is where some taxa some organism evolves in what seems like a backward state where they go towards more primitive conditions and an extreme example this would be like a chicken de-evolving back into a t-rex so maybe its feathers aren't as big and it can't fly and starts to get 40 feet tall or whatever we do see it in smaller doses but there's a kind of improper uh, foundation for the term because things are always evolving even the most primitive organism, you know, we colloquially say things like sharks or alligators haven't evolved or haven't changed in millions and millions of years. Uh, they're they're still evolving. They're, they're still changing over time. The differences may be minor uh they may be i mean it could be something as simple as like cellular respiration has been increasing over the last hundred billion years or whatever it's just mm-hmm. they just don't look very different and I, I think that's where people get into the idea of primitive means you look like a dinosaur or you look like something else but things don't de-evolve they don't go back towards something necessarily yeah mutation could occur where it goes back to the original state But that's just an example of evolution, not de-evolution. Evolution Evolution is kind of a always plowing ahead forward type of concept. It never looks back. It just keeps going forward. It works with what it has. We're very, very, very likely not going to de-evolve to have gills because that's just very difficult (laughs) to happen. In theory, it could happen. Uh, But it's very, very, very unlikely. And even if it did, it wouldn't be the same gills that our ancestors had, they would be essentially new gills.
0: Right, right. What do you mean I can't fly? That's what I want (laughs) to evolve into. Come on.
1: Right, right. (laughs) That's actually been one of the funniest things building on that. Evolutionary biology and learning about this really, really ruined a lot of mythical creatures for me. So, um, so like, when we talk about these concepts of what we just said, like, you work with what you got. Wings are a great example of this. So bird wings and bat wings, they both formed from what is arms and hands, but they formed in very different ways where the birds, everything kind of got truncated and a little bit more uh, like I'm making this. I I don't know how to communicate what this is on a audio format where the fingers are all kind of squished together. uh, Whereas bats... They have the webbing between all of their digits. Now, when you look at something like a mythical creature, like a griffin or something, and the wings are just sprouting out of their back, it's like, what did they have out of there? Did they just have extra arms coming out of their back that evolved into wings? Like, it doesn't make sense, because they are presumably tetrapods. They have four limbs. But with the addition of uh, wings, now that's six things. So this is a big tangent. Um, But I would say a <laughs> griffin is a, <laughs> it's a hexapod. It's got six. Um,
0: Interesting. No, I yeah. so I don't know. I, I think uh there's I think people like to label things as like a like progression. Mm-hmm. Um I don't find it as progression, it's just more like blind success yeah. or random success, you know, with oh, yeah. working with what you got. We can't emphasize that anymore. But um yeah, most definitely. Oh, yeah. Is there yeah. any other things that you would like to talk about that come up as terms that are kind of not in terms of evolutionary biology?
1: Maybe not necessarily a term, but it actually fits in really well with what you said about evolution, kind of blindly stumbling and getting successful on accident. There's this notion, and I think everyone is guilty of it, and it's seeing an organism in the wild and assuming that it's perfectly adapted for that environment. You hear this on like every nature documentary, it's like, you know, the cheetah in the bush is perfectly adapted for speed. And it's, well, you know, the thing is, it's nothing is really perfectly adapted. It's just that it has certain adaptations that are really good for what it does, but it could be much faster. It could be a much stronger organism. It could be better, but it's working with what it has. It has its own limitations. Like, yeah, there are super fast humans, and you know, no one's saying like, oh, Usain Bolt is uh, perfectly adapted for speed. You know, it's he <laughs> it, it could be more. I mean, there's lots of organisms oh, yeah. that are way faster. But it's just seeing some organism and saying, oh, that is perfectly adapted, and every adaptation it has is specifically meant for the environment that it lives in is not really true. There are, you know, vestigial organs. We see them all over the place, uh, things that used to be useful but are not. Uh, And they're still there, though, you know, the the appendix isn't perfectly adapted for rupturing in the emergency room. Uh, You (laughs) know, it doesn't doesn't really... uh, always makes sense. But uh, it's, it's, a, it's a concept that I, I was luckily drilled into very, very early on in my like evolution career. And it's really helped me beyond evolution, just looking at an organism and trying to understand its traits. And like, why does it have that in this environment?
0: I think there's still some people that can do this, but mm-hmm. I attribute it more as a vestigial trait. And that is wiggling your ears because we oh, yeah. don't have to communicate via just body language anymore. <laughs> I mean, we still do, don't get me wrong. It's oh, yeah. very important, but being able to have like speech is kind of way more important so less people i don't think can do that right
1: right exactly and it's uh you know this is actually a very fun thing you can do with like classroom like like kids and whatnot is have them act like they're aliens and they have to describe an organism and exactly what its traits are used for it's going into it that mindset because in essence we are the aliens looking at a I don't know, like an elephant and trying to figure out why does it have those tusks? And, you know, maybe we can get the right answer, but maybe we get the wrong answer. And it's it, it's fun to think about it that way because then you realize it's like, if we did that with humans, you know, we can make up some like crazy, crazy answers. You know, like the ears are adapted to like swimming fast or something because they saw one like sh- wiggle in the water when someone was swimming, you know? <laughs> it's like, ah, they must be rudders or I don't know. You know, you can make up anything. Like that's the cool thing. Uh, but... Yeah, it's, it's something to keep in mind whenever
0: you're looking at things is that
1: maybe that thing is just there because it's just uh, there. Maybe its ancestors used it and it doesn't use it anymore.
0: Very true. Very true. I think the last thing that we should talk about before we roll into our first commercial break is you answering the question. Why do people think that mutations are just bad and explain why they're not just bad?
1: Yeah, m- mutations have gotten a pretty bad rap. Um mm-hmm. A lot of it is definitely just mass media. You know you you hear like the X-Men or something, and it's like a single mutation in their genome, and it's like, that's nothing. There's tons of single mutations. And that happens all the time. You probably have a few million in yourself. Um, and also things medically, like cancer or uh, seeing like, oh, this mutation caused a, uh, a, a a really bad disease, really bad chronic disease or something. And so that's the cases we focus on, but mutations are the base unit for, all diversity of life on this planet the reason that we have uh you know frogs and bears and giant trees is all because of single mutations over the course of billions of years it's super 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 cool to like just think that all of this started from just four little base pairs changing over time and duplicating and then kind of melding together and and then just becoming every single living thing we see today Also, we should mention that most mutations are just completely removed when they occur. Um, Most bodies have like really good DNA fixing processes. They look for mutations and try to remove them. So yes, in the grand scheme of things, I guess the majority of them are bad, but the majority of them never even affect anything because they're just removed. Um, So
0: honestly i probably would have answered it different by saying like hey look i mean we do have some mutations that you could technically say are bad but then there's others that are good like you know people having blue eyes or i guess beating lactose intolerance i mean there's many different ways that, you know we've mutated and it's been good
1: <laughs> yeah right like cheese
0: yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah you can eat cheese cool sorry for the people that can't maybe someday your ancestors will be able to. I I apologize. (laughs) But I think we're going to run into our first commercial break. And then whenever we come back, we're going to be talking about amphibian evolution. So stick around. Are you an athlete who is constantly on the grind? Maybe you're a student who's cramming for an 8 a.m. exam the next day. Or maybe you're someone who's crushing a hike and you have three peaks to go. Well, you've come to the right ad, Sigma snacks are a healthy alternative to pre-workout and energy drinks. These snacks deliver easily digestible sugars and carbs necessary to crush an early morning workout, late night study sesh, or any adventure in between. By combining caffeine and the amino acid L-theanine, these bars are backed by scientific research to provide clean energy, extra focus, and reduce the anxiety and crash that are associated with normal pre-workout and junk energy drinks. Not to mention, They taste great. Specifically, I have been taking them with me on my backpacking adventures. They're a great way to start the day without having any jitters or an upset stomach on the trail. Lastly, Sigma Snacks is a student-run, student-operated startup that would like to offer you 15% off your first purchase with the promo code STEAM. So head on over to EatSigmaSnacks.com and order your first Sigma snack today to have the best and most reliable source of energy shipped right to your door. That's eatsegmasnacks.com, promo code STEAM for energy that's out of this world. All right, we're back. This is segment two, and we're talking about amphibian evolution. And I guess we'll just cut right to it because it's kind of the obvious question that we should really start out with: is like amphibians. Where did it start?
1: About three. 60 to 400 million years ago, um, all, all these million years are going to be estimates, but that's mm-hmm. when we got the first uh, amphibians, the, the ancestors to all of the, some 8,000 species of amphibians that we have today. I'd love to say where, but it is very difficult to say where. We can say <laughs> uh, Pangea. <laughs> but, uh, so that that doesn't really help much. But yeah, during uh, during this time, amphibians rose out from some group that had a common ancestor with fish. They were very much so in the water, and the amphibians were the first tetrapods, so the the, the four-limbed animals uh, that that really really got onto land. So we we hear of like some of the lobe-finned fishes, uh, the most famous like pictolic, that did kind of go onto land. That is what paved the way for amphibians to eventually colonize land. But uh, amphibians are still famously amphibios means living double life is that they uh need to be in the water they need to have water as a main stage so this is where i just love amphibian evolutionary history because it's so so old and just the (laughs) origins of it are so cool it's like get out of the water get onto land you need to get all of these different traits to be able to survive on that first you just need to not die from drying out like that's the thing you know fish are just in the water they don't need to worry about drying out as much because they're in the water all the time. But the amphibians are not. So many early amphibians were probably uh, like half in the water. There's a term for it where they're just kind of they're they're above land. They're they're breathing air. You know, they're past that gill stage. But then they're just in the water the whole time. So they don't completely dry out and die.
0: Isn't um, like a good uh, indicator to that, like whenever you're looking at the fossil record uh, where their um their quote unquote like blow holes transition because like, how, like yeah. fish breathe and circulate the oxygen into their swim bladders mm-hmm. and stuff, that position has changed over time to where it finally became more or less in the uh, area of like a snout.
1: There's something with that, and I'm really struggling to remember it because also with amphibians, it gets so messy because <laughs> they, the, the, they have the larval stage, which makes it even more complicated because they Ooh, have yeah. gills at some point. They, many, many species have gills, uh, not all, because amphibians are crazy, uh, but many have gills at some point in their life stage, and then they completely just go away and are replaced with lungs. Um, if you ever have the chance to like watch a tadpole develop from like a single-celled egg all the way up through all the, they're they're called Gosner stages, and it's just when they get their gills, when they can move around, mm. It is one of the coolest things you could possibly do. I stayed up in a lab for 48 hours straight on just coffee, taking pictures of these ones that we found in the field. And it's, it's just like, ah, this is so cool because you, you see it grow right before your eyes. It's the craziest thing. Um, that is awesome. But do it because you're going to see like this organism develop. Uh, you'll start to see when the neurons actually fire, you'll start to see the gills coming out and they are these big tend, ten- they look like tendrils yeah. <laughs> coming out. And then they go back in and they start to get their first breath and you start, you know, it's just the coolest thing. I, I always recommend doing it if you can. But to get to that, yeah, it's amphibians. They just make everything so complex and
0: so complicated. Uh, awesome. But it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> So these tetrapods, they were mm-hmm. the first animals on land, correct? Because what was on land before that was some arthropods mm-hmm. and, of course, fungus and some plants, right?
1: Yeah, it was some early plants, uh, a few of your uh, insects. And then, uh, yeah, so so tetrapods, it's mm-hmm. just the four-limbed animals. Um, yeah. Which is like most of the time when you think of an animal, it's going to be a tetrapod. Tetrapods were like the first real land animals, as we kind of put
0: it. Yeah, and this was like Devonian period, so we're talking like yeah. Gondwana as like one of the supercontinents in that time. Yeah,
1: so around that time, it would be Gondwana and Pangaea. They were starting to split. I mean, it, you know, it took hundreds of millions of years to fully split, but uh, Gondwana is the the southern half, which is what ended up oh, being yeah. like uh, Africa, Australia, uh, South America, and then Laurasia is the the northern half, which ended up being Asia, Europe. Uh, North america that type of stuff but it's a messy history lots of connections which we'll definitely get into it's a very cool history there's some awesome visualizations online to kind of help cement all this
0: this is all pre-amniote evolution mm-hmm. correct yeah yeah that's a good segue the amniotes
1: <laughs> <laughs> hey <laughs> uh, amniotes are basically the egg layers um and that's kind of what we think about when we think of amniotes is they have eggs but The amphibians, when they colonized land and they started to spread out, other organisms did too. And it was a little bit of a problem because amphibians still lay eggs, just like fish lay eggs, many fish lay eggs. But when you're on land, it is much easier to dry out. You're not completely Mm -hmm. submerged in water. So the amniote had evolved. Basically, in response to this, so uh, they needed to not dry out as much. So the anodic sac, as well as many, many later uh, variations of the egg, ended up evolving so that there could still be gas transfer uh, between the developing organism and the outside area, but they could also be protected from drying out, hence why the inside of a chicken egg is wet.
0: So, yeah, <laughs> right. Oh, oh, yeah, right. I think the dimetrodon is one of the most popular amniotes that kind of brought forth eggs it was my favorite growing
1: up yeah like (laughs) the dimension that was always my favorite (laughs) nice um yeah and it's super cool so like some of the most early eggs uh they they looked more like sacks kind of leathery sacks yeah. yeah which is actually what a lot of your snake eggs look like today so if you've ever had the fortune of seeing snake eggs they are leathery and they'll actually deflate
0: after the snake is hatched i guess I need to actually look at a picture mm-hmm.
1: of this. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> oh, it's it's wild. So there's a lot of snake breeders out there, and there there's like thousands of hours of videos of them using razor blades to help open up the snake's egg. Like they'll just cut it open. It's super cool. I bred snakes in like when I was a teenager, so it was ah uh, it's like, ah, these eggs look like dinosaur eggs. you know <laughs> this is cool. Um, actually, I think okay. the dinosaur eggs might have been hard shelled. That's outside of my realm.
0: So we have the pre-amniotes, the amniotes come along, and we're kind of heading out of the Devonian more towards the Carboniferous. Do you want to Mm -hmm. take us through what kind of happened in the Carboniferous period?
1: Yeah. So up until this point, there was, how do I put it? Like plant life was crazy (laughs) the entire planet was just covered in plants it was just like a giant rainforest
0: so it's where we get most of our fossil fuels
1: yeah exactly Mm -hmm. and a lot of that is because of a giant collapse of the rainforest so all of our like coal or fossil fuels a lot of that comes from this ancient rainforest that ultimately collapsed and this led to crazy diversification amphibians were already around before that I think around 100 million, 150 million years at this point, if I'm getting my time periods right. So they had a long time to
0: evolve. So I think the Permian period, the Great mm. Dying, was 250 million years ago. And mm. if we look at the late Devonian, whenever they kind of sprung up the bundles, that was like 360, so right. eh, about 100, 100 million years. Yeah, yeah, it's,
1: exactly. But uh, the Great Dying was a huge part of it. Lots of organisms died we talk about that big extinction 65 million years ago even before that there was another big one there's been several mass extinctions but yeah so during this time this is actually when the amniotes really developed because the earth got drier because of well a loss of rainforests a loss of something that can actually keep humidity and keep moisture on the planet so a lot of amphibians died out some survived of course because we still have amphibians today or i should say ancestor to amphibians survived um But also other organisms evolved. This is when reptiles really started to come into fruition. So your snakes and lizards, they evolved around 170 million years ago, not too crazy long after that. I believe the crown reptiles were 300 million years ago, but a lot of it kind of gets muddied. I mean, this is where we start to see birds and mammals and stuff start to arise over the next 100 million years or so it's a really crazy dynamic period where, I mean, over the course of millions of years, there's just this mass sort of turnover of life going on on this planet where it was just massive rainforest. Now it's a little bit more temperate. Maybe uh, some other life is going to come into play and fill in the little gaps where the rainforest used to kind of uh,
0: predominate. I can maybe help ring a bell with these time periods. So Mm -hmm. the late Devonian, we see them arise out of tetrapods, et cetera. And then mm-hmm. we get into the carboniferous. The carboniferous happens for a little bit and then we have the Permian mm-hmm. and the Permian ends 250 million years ago. And then between the great dying and the KPG, you have the Jurassic and Triassic periods. Right. And so that that boundary where you see a rise of mammals and the fall of reptilians, mm-hmm. that's the KPG, paleogenes after that, yep. so.
1: yeah, Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it was during that time, because mammals were proto-mammals way back when, but it, they didn't really come to fruition until that KT boundary. That's when the big asteroid <laughs> hit the planet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, but but uh, the, the classical thought is that mammals diversified from there because uh, mainly like proto-rodents, more or less, they were smaller organisms that could more easily survive in this, like, might be dramatic to call
0: it hellish landscape, but I'll call it that. Uh, so. Yeah, but between that like mm-hmm. long time period of the three hundred sixty million years ago to about like mm-hmm. one hundred and ten, you had the bundles, mm-hmm. like completely diversified. It was a huge yeah. group They like ruled the earth for a long time.
1: Oh yeah, they they were everywhere. They're in a really weird spot because we're not one hundred percent sure. They they were definitely something within amphibians. That's kind of where we're mostly pretty sure about. But where it gets messy is if they were a group that ended up evolving into all of the amphibians that we have today, or if they were a completely separate offshoot. So Mm -hmm. amphibians today are split into frogs, salamanders, and Sicilians. Those are our three major groupings. The history of those is a little bit murky, but we're pretty confident about it now. It's just unclear if there was, a, you know, a fourth branch shooting off that was the uh, the temnospondyls, or if the temnospondyls were even before those three groups and were the common ancestor to all of them. But yeah, no, they're a huge group, and there's some amazing visualizations of them online. It's such a great Wikipedia binge because there's all these cool artist visualizations, and they have crazy looking skulls. So they're just they're super super cool organisms.
0: I do have a really interesting fun fact. Of course, I'm sure you would have got to this anyways. Is there's no marine amphibians today. Mm-hmm. But if this is true, if the tetanospondyls are part of the amphibian lineage of some sort, mm-hmm. there was some that were you know discovered in marine deposits. So they did have some marine ancestors. Mm-hmm. But the reason why they know that is because of lateral systems. And we see lateral systems in aquatic marine life specifically like lampreys or hagfish. And then also the more famous examples are sharks and rays. And I can't remember the exact name for what sharks and rays have, but they have pressure and movement detection, Mm -hmm. but they also have electromagnetic detection, which is really cool. Of course, they didn't have that, but I just like to give a shout out to sharks and rays because that's pretty cool. They definitely had cilia that Mm -hmm. were at the end of these pores of the lateral system that, that would go through their skin. And whenever the cilia would move, it would, of course, create, like, an impulse, and they would create a detection. Yeah, pretty neat stuff.
1: It's super cool. It does make me think about, what would it be like if we still had them around? Because, like, marine amphibians would be just so cool. Like, I could just imagine, maybe there's a part of me that's hoping there's one bundle at the bottom of the Marianas Trench or whatever. Uh, That'd (laughs) be cool, Um, you know, but... It is weird, like, when you actually really think about it, how there is no marine amphibians whatsoever. The, the closest we have is, like, the marine toad, which is a misnomer because they're just, you can find them on the beaches. They don't really go into the soil. Um, yeah, yeah. The amphibians are worried about drying out a lot, and seawater is not really conducive to that. But um, it is interesting where if you think about things like mammals, which evolved much, much later than the amphibians did, they were out of the land, and then they went back into the water. And if you even look at it with other groups, like like, turtles have done this. There are still marine turtles that are still around nowadays, as well as the terrestrial ones. And I mean, even with birds, there's marine birds that are predominantly in the saltwater. But it's uh, amphibians, uh, kind of going back to like you know you're working with what you got. I guess that's like the theme here is that amphibians have this adaptation where they need to stay moist. They really need to maintain water. That's incredibly important to their physiology and well-being. So the evolutionary steps to go back into salt water or to get into the, it, it's a huge barrier for them to overcome evolutionarily speaking. It's, it's just interesting to see that where other groups like the, the mammals, the birds, uh, they've already kind of solved that issue. They don't really worry about drying out anywhere near as much as amphibians. We have very thick epidermis that actually you know, holds in that moisture. And we, uh, hmm. we try to conserve our water best we can. And we're terrible at it. Like as humans compared to other organisms, we're awful at conserving water. If you look at like desert rats or most reptiles for that matter. But in amphibians it's at a whole other level
0: that's so true that's another one of those like key differences between the temnospondyls mm-hmm. and like present day amphibians is how their skin was made up mm-hmm. the temnospondyls were scaly and that's yeah. not how amphibians are today
1: <laughs> there's a part of me that's like a why didn't the toads ever evolve to get into the water because they're a little bit but it's still i don't know that's just the way it works you know you can't can't have everything i guess <laughs>
0: Yeah, true. So in in this uh segment we've kind of mm-hmm. talked more along like the really really distant past. But what are you seeing in terms of evolution with the amphibians more present day, maybe more like the last glaciation period, etc. What do you what do you see?
1: Yeah, what you see over this time is you see a lot of land bridge connections. So as as water levels uh fluctuate, they go up, they go down. When they're lower, you have more land bridges usually. So these are ways for amphibians over the course of tens of thousands, maybe even millions of years to move from one area to another. Uh, Panama is a really famous example, the land bridge between North America and South America. We also have the Bering land bridge that goes Mm. from Eastern Asia over to North America. And then there's also a few other smaller ones. I know there was one between Papua New Guinea and Australia. Most islands have had it. I need to double check the exact timing of these tectonics, but also you see things like India crashing into Asia. This is the thing, if you ever find a visualization of plate tectonics, you will just see India being all the way in the south and just making like all beelines and just hit straight into Asia. And that's why we have the Himalayas. Like, it's so cool to see that, oh, this is just like a tectonic plate just going. And then boom, it's crushing into it and making mountains in a very fast period of time. Um, And that's also why they're so tall. They haven't had time to erode. Shout out to the Appalachians because they're cool. Um, (laughs) Yeah, um, But yeah, so it's this time of fluctuations and change. So while the land bridges are also changing, you also see mass climate change due to the glaciation period there are some fantastic visualizations of like salamander range estimations over the last 50,000 years. And it just fluctuates with the glaciers so much. And you see them going uh, north and south and north and south as a giant group. It's so, so cool to see it. And the more you look into amphibians, the more you realize their entire evolutionary history has just been marked by these glacial periods.
0: They are heavily influenced just based on like their migration. But how about in terms of like mass extinction within the amphibian realm?
1: Yeah, I mean, mass extinctions. Uh, I mean, we're in one now. Uh, that's always <laughs> a, an important reminder. Yeah. Um, right. Partially due to climate change. Uh, when things get hotter and drier, it generally, it's harder for amphibians. Um, also, when habitats get destroyed due to climate change, amphibians are not exactly the most migratable species compared to birds every year going from canada to the equator and back they can migrate very easily but amphibians they don't migrate very fast in terms Mm of organisms they are more impacted by things like climate change Uh, they are in in a very anthropocene very modern era they are affected by humans a lot more and uh, we're losing a lot of
0: amphibians That was going to be my next question. Yeah. Was what's the rates of today?
1: Oh, gosh. So there is a really, uh, there's this publication, which I've cited it a few times because it's so good. There's this concept called the background extinction rate. Extinction isn't like an inherently bad thing in the grand scheme of things. Most species are extinct. Uh, Yeah, right. Like (laughs) 99.99. Right, right. And there is a rate that you can detect of, well, over the course of a thousand years, how many species do you expect to go extinct? Just across all life on Earth, how much do you expect? Uh, Maybe if we just look at the amphibians, maybe we say over the course of a million years, we expect to lose. This is a complete guess. I don't know the actual number off the top of my head, but uh, maybe 10 to 20 species over the course of a million years. And then maybe we'll gain a few more through diversification or whatever. But there was a paper that looked at it and said, "Okay, well, historically, what is our estimated extinction rate, and what is it now? If I'm remembering correctly, it's definitely higher, but it's either between 20 and a thousand times higher right now. So wow. it's a crazy, crazy, crazy high number. You know, in, in my worldview, it's like I don't necessarily care as much the exact number. It's more like it's a lot higher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a lot yeah. higher right now. I feel like I've seen claims of a million, but I don't know if that's an extreme, you know, guess. But it's still just massively high. So,
0: yeah, of course. I mean, even like twenty, it's like, oh, that's concerning. And then yeah. you're getting into the hundreds, and you're like, oh boy. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I get
1: yeah, that. they just keep adding zeros onto that, and it keeps getting scarier and scarier. You know, it's you know. what
0: is a life without amphibians?
1: Amphibians, they encompass about 8,000 species around the world. I always like to say there's a lot more amphibians than people realize. And they are important for a lot of different reasons. You know, it's always tough for me because I just like them and that's why they're important to me. But they are actually incredible bioindicators. So because of their influence, because of how they are affected by water pollution they can actually tell you ahead of time hey is this stream getting a lot of pollution is the are the amphibians dying out uh so that actually is a really good early indicator for how is the total ecosystem actually doing and i have been to areas that have almost no amphibians and it is weird when they should be
0: there it's it's weird oh, when they're not like the north Folk southern derailment like area. Yeah. In Ohio. Yeah. yeah.
1: Al- although they, uh, I just saw that they found a hellbender out near Palestine. I uh, did. Yeah. Like yeah. that blew my mind. Uh, well, no, it blew my mind more because the article was trying to say like, this is a good thing. And I'm like, it's not a good thing. There's the water's polluted. It's going to die. <laughs> like, this is yeah. bad.
0: <laughs> Get it out of there.
1: Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but they're also really, really, uh, important for insect control. So I think it's on an average night, your standard frog could eat anywhere from like two to a hundred insects. So if if you hate mosquitoes, I I think a lot of people who live in like the American Southeast, so like the Gulf of Mexico and everything, they're pretty familiar with the concept of tree frogs being right next to your light, eating the mosquitoes that get attracted to it and eating the moths and everything. Like That's just a common thing. They are important for those reasons. Of course we also have some incredible medical advantages from them. Many amphibians are poisonous in some way. They actually secrete poisons through glands or they sequester poisons like in the case of poison dart frogs because they mm. actually kind of steal the poison in a way and concentrate it from ants. It's so cool. Whoa. Like and there's an entirely separate group that evolved it completely separately in Madagascar, the mantellas, and they do it with termites instead of ants. It's just ah, amphibians are so cool. Oh, it's cool. <laughs> So, uh, we, we have been able to synthesize a few things from the poisons of uh, different toads. Uh, there is like a famous example of a toad in the American Southwest that you can actually get DMT from it. It's not really worth it. It's too much of an effort to actually get it when you could just probably ask anyone hanging outside of a 7 Eleven. But, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, this is it's so much effort and it's not worth it. So, but it's cool. And also, yeah. if you don't since sides are right, you can die. I should say that. I should say that out of safety. Definitely. Yeah, safety, safety first. Don't lick toads. But it's, yeah, all these things are kind of, in a way, purely economical or purely like, how is this pragmatically good for me? But you can't ignore the the insane cultural aspect that amphibians have put in. So many different cultures around the world have seen them as a symbol of rebirth. Many, many, many cultures have them as, I mean, direct gods, direct symbols of larger things, larger issues. It's hard to ignore that. Of Frogs are important because they are important to people, just culturally. They just love frogs. And, yeah. you know, that should be the case. It shouldn't just be a dollar values, you know.
0: Unfortunately, when you have to write grants, you have to make it, you know, so that people give you money to study right. things. But yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, Do you have anything else that you want to say before we roll into our commercial break?
1: Let me see. Evolutionary history amphibians. I don't think so. No.
0: Okay. We're going to talk about a specific group of amphibians when we return. Have you ever been standing in the shower, looking at the ingredients on your shampoo bottle and noticed that water is always the first ingredient? Well, I have. After a little research, I discovered that shampoo is over 80% water, which is kind of like dumping bottled water on your head while you're standing in a shower. And that's why I'm excited that I found Seabar, a disposable plastic free hair care line that cleans up ocean trash with every purchase. Not only does C-Bar pick up one pound of ocean trash for every item ordered, but their salon quality shampoo and conditioner concentrates come from refillable applicators, kind of like deodorant tubes. Just twist them up, rub it on over your hair a couple times, and then just lather it up like you normally would. My favorite part is how long they last. I've personally been using the same C-Bar for three months now and I've barely used any. So not only does it help save the environment, it's also effective, efficient, and most importantly it saves me money. If you would like to try a better way to wash your hair, head on over to cbar.com and use our special code STEAM for 15% off your first order. C-bar shampoo done right for you and the planet all right segment three this is it this is the final segment and we have a specific tale uh not not by me by any chance i'm gonna be the the bystander here and i'm gonna hand it over to dylan so he can share this wonderful tale with you on a group of amphibians
1: yeah so we we were kind of planning out this uh podcast i thought of a great story it's it's my favorite evolutionary story of the amphibians and it's uh so uh sam do you like feet I'm not a feet guy. Mike. like, <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, you're going to hate this story then. So this is about <laughs> the feet of salamanders. So this is the story that got me into evolutionary biology. This is the story that like I've been reading papers and stuff about it for, honestly, at this point, maybe a decade, which is just wow. feels stupid to me. There's this group of salamanders. There's a genus called the Boletoglossa salamanders. And they are about a hundred and... 30, 140 species total. So they are the most speciose group in the most speciose family of salamanders. This is like by far my favorite group. So they're cool for many reasons. We're going to start off with why they're cool. So they're in the family Plethodontidae, which is already super cool. These are the ones that are in uh, largely North America, a few in East Asia. This is actually one of those land bridge situations as well, where a lot of mm-hmm. early amphibians kind of crossed over from Asia through the Bering Land Bridge into North America. and
0: so. See, humans uh, aren't that special.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, amphibians are doing it way before the humans did it. Uh, <laughs> so, so so, this group, so the, the whole family, they're they're lungless. So they've de-evolved. Uh, we're looping back. Oh, no. <laughs> they, uh, yeah, so they don't have that standard lungs like we think of a breathe in, breathe out. They actually breathe through their skin. It's, it's super weird. It's not even gills. It's called a cutaneous respiration they just breathe through their skin maybe breathe is not the right word they conduct osmotic regulation through their skin nice yeah i always thought that was cool they also it's almost have... like
0: they never leave the egg
1: yeah exactly they're just always like that and then uh, i mean well with the eggs some of them are direct developers so they uh they don't even have the egg stage they just skip that <laughs> wow okay <laughs> they're so insane they also have incredibly complex mating dances uh Oh, th- like there is a beautiful paper that just breaks it all down. There's like 40 or 50 different types of dances. Some of them will like rake their teeth on the back of the neck of the female to transplant pheromones. They'll like wiggle their tail. There's also really good videos of this. Uh, they'll do like spinning in circles. It, it, it's it's super complex. And at the end of it, the male will drop a uh, sperm sac. I guess is the best way to put it, on the ground and then gently guide the female over it so that she can deposit the sperm onto the eggs. This can actually delimit different species because if the male leads the female a millimeter too far, it's going to miss and then won't impregnate the woman. Like it's crazy. It's crazy. So you can have entire species groups that'll still be attracted to the dances, but then they won't continue forward because the male didn't bring her far enough or brought her a little bit too far. Like they're just a weird group. They're a cool group. But then within them, there is bolidoglossa as a genus. So you know, family plethodontidae genus mm-hmm. is boledoglossa. So boledoglossa are the amphibians that actually made it south. Sorry, the salamanders that made it south. If you look at most salamander ranges, it's almost all uh, what used to be Laurasia. So North America, Asia, Europe. That's the mm-hmm. vast, vast, vast majority of salamander rages. They did evolve in Laurasia after Pangea broke up. So that kind of makes sense. But if you look at it for Glossa, you'll see a kind of a tendril going through Central America and down into South America. And it's that story that I love. So belita Glossa, they also have these things called nasolabial groups, uh, these little okay. things on the front of their mouth that is used to like detect pheromones. It makes them look really cute if you see a macro photo. But the Belita glossa are known for their webbed feet. So they have this really crazy webbing between all of their toes. It's pretty indicative throughout the entire genus. There's a couple species that don't really have as much webbing. But in general, all of them have this webbing. And for a long, long, long time, it was thought that they use that webbing to actually suction cup and climb up uh, leaves basically. Kind of like a Mission Impossible thing where they just keep suction cupping up the glass skyscraper, but instead it's a giant leaf in the tropics. Really, really cool. So uh, reading that and trying to understand why was was always really, really important to me. I, I just loved it. But then I started looking into evolutionary history a little more. I started piecing together more papers. I started to understand the complicated jargon words in the papers and could really see what's going on. And what I found is that that webbing feet as being an adaptive trait isn't exactly true so there were some old papers done in i believe the 80s or 90s where they actually tested the suction cup ability of these feet basically nice. they had the salamanders like hanging from a little pane of glass and they like would see how long it would take them for them to fall and it's like oh this one can suction really good you know uh, <laughs> in the 80s it was much easier to get a grant so <laughs> but you know that and that was the standard thing. But then you start looking into their evolutionary history a bit more, and there was many papers done by the late, great David Wake, who is like the salamander guy, the of glossy guy, uh, and then just a few other amazing authors throughout their history, kind of trying to understand why are these salamanders here. So they had what was thought to be an adaptive radiation coming through Central America into South America. The traditional thinking was the suction cups allowed them to actually climb up the trees so they could exploit a niche that wasn't really occupied, or possibly they could have exploited this niche better than uh, some other organism that was in this sort of mid to low canopy niche. Well, then there was a paper that actually tested, are these feet adaptive? That was the baseline question so you can really detect if are these traits are they following any specific pattern for example if giraffe necks were adaptive for tall trees we well, would expect taller giraffes to be around taller trees that that's one way to kind of think about it or you'd expect the different size of giraffe to have a different size of neck or whatever but it would be uh, proportional to their adaptive ability so if mm-hmm. uh, they're yeah so they did that with the a, with the feet, and they looked at their feet with their suction ability. They actually used a mathematical model to quantify suction ability, uh, and it's a really simple one. It's so cool! Like it's like this is this is the era we live in, 2020. Uh, and what what they found is that uh, there is no adaptive ability. This oh. webbing is not adaptive in the slightest. Uh, it's not adaptive for climbing up leaves and getting into the trees whatsoever. And so that's like a wait, so then why do they have these webbed feet? This is actually a really nice tie-in to the start of the podcast about uh, you know, hey, adaptation doesn't mean that it's perfectly adapted for their environment. So what they discovered was these amphibians started up in North America. They started up there and they started moving southwards. In Central America, uh, they thought to go along the mountain ranges during glaciation cycles, of course, because mm-hmm. when the glaciers came in and it was uh, or receded and things got a little too hot, they could either go more north or they could go up in elevation to get to cooler temperatures. So the mountain ranges almost act as uh, highways for genetic diversity. And these belita went down that way. As they went more and more south, it got warmer and warmer and warmer. The cool thing about amphibians is that they are uh, ectotherms. Their metabolism is controlled by the outside temperature, and this affects everything. This affects their metabolism. This affects also things like how fast they grow. So as they started going south more and more, these early salamanders started to develop faster and faster and faster. And if we look at almost all uh, tetrapod embryos uh, as they develop, one of the very last things to happen is that their digits stop being webbed. So these amphibians just developed faster and they just didn't lose the webbing because they were just popped out of that womb a little earlier. Wow. Or not womb, but yeah, yeah. They were were popped out a little earlier. Uh, Yeah. So so this is actually just sort of this like evolutionarily just, eh, it just sort of happened that way. Things got warmer. They came out a little faster and now they have webbed feet. And, And it just so happens they can kind of climb with it. It's not because they needed to climb or because climbing was such a big deal that they the web feet had to evolve. It was uh, purely just they're moving southwards. So their morphology responded to an external stimuli. It's a really fascinating tale because I, I think it wraps up a lot about what I see with evolution is like, every organism has a story, right? Every single organism on this planet has a story contained in millions or thousands of years of evolution. Mm-hmm. And this one is a story of, they went southwards and the environment changed what this entire species group looked like and made them the most speciose genus in the most speciose family of salamanders and they're by far one of my favorite organisms oh my gosh i didn't even mention because they don't have lungs they have a projectile tongue um it's, it's like you know everyone thinks of frogs as having that long tongue that can like grab a fly and that's not really a thing and these salamanders it is they can do it i've seen it it's so cool their tongue can be i think one and a half times their body length fully extended like it's crazy wow i I need to double check that exact number but yeah it's very very far um and so you know this group is They're these tropical salamanders that can set you up trees and shoot a projectile tongue and they don't need to breathe, sort of. They kind of breathe through their skin. They're just like such a cool group of organisms.
0: Wow. So I'm just curious. With this uh, fast development process, what else is underdeveloped? Kind of like how they have the webbings. Is is there anything else that they found that is affected because of this?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question because – in salamanders, uh, the retention of juvenile characteristics, patamorphous, This is where you'll see, like the the axolotl, which is a uh, really famous example of one. Uh, most salamanders in this ambystoma. Uh, genus that uh, includes the axolotl they're they're aquatic when they're young and then they develop and they turn into land-based organisms where they lose their gills and everything the axolotl does not they stay aquatic they still have gills and that's pedomorphic that's a juvenile characteristic that exists into adulthood Mm. so in this case it is sort of a pedomorphic trait it it is pedomorphic and for a long time it was just believed that hey it's it's pedomorphic because it was evolutionarily adaptive to be petamorphic—that that's kind of what they were saying but i don't know of any other traits actually now that i'm thinking about it there might be something with the ossification of the skull that's oh. ringing a bell like where the skull is slightly under ossified at first but i'd have to double check I, I think there are a few other small minor things but mm, they're escaping me
0: at this moment oh yeah Just curious. I mean, it seemed like um, if it was happening to one sort of trait, it would probably happen to others. Right.
1: And it it could have also been that, you know, uh, I think it was 30 million years ago, the bleated glosses split off from the other salamanders. It could have been that 30 million years ago, there was some trait that was really, really good for whatever reason, because I know this group got into South America around 23 to 26 million years ago. It was a very fast, relatively speaking, very fast movement down south. So it could have been back then the suction cupping was really a big deal. It was really needed, but it's no longer needed. Maybe something changed in the environment, some trait changed, and now it's just a feature that they all have. Uh, something that's called a spandrel of evolution is is what we kind of refer to it as. They have something that is still there, but it might be used for something else, like suction cup and climbing up trees. Maybe back then it was useful for complete random guests with no data. Uh, I don't know, suction cupping yeah. onto another salamander during mating <laughs> during their crazy mating dances, or you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it could be something completely crazy that we could never fully know. But yeah,
0: yeah. it doesn't even have to feel like one, I guess. Um, one way of how they live it could be multiple different things Yeah, exactly it could be any number of things yeah yeah absolutely well dylan that was awesome i really appreciate the tale i also appreciate you being on the podcast this has been fantastic talking a little bit more about like evolution some in-depth about amphibian evolution their time their influence all of it it's been wonderful thank you
1: yeah yeah this was fun thanks for letting me uh, nerd out about amphibians (laughs) (laughs)
0: absolutely absolutely all right man well thanks cheers that is all for this episode of everything steam i just wanted to take a quick second and thank dylan for sharing his knowledge and expertise on amphibians evolution and just science in general definitely make sure you check out his content on instagram you can find dylan at dylan the biologist I would also love to mention my team for their collective efforts to make this show happen. This podcast was edited by Ariel Piermont, marketed by Courtney Page, QC by Panny Pitt Erxit, and our episode art was created by Gabrielle Edmiston. After the episode, please give our podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you get your podcast on. We're always looking for feedback and the rating would greatly help us out in the fight against those algorithms. Lastly, be sure to check us out on all the socials for podcast news, Upcoming episodes and just fun Steam content. Search Everything Steam on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Reddit to join in on the fun. Once again, thank you for listening to Everything Steam. I'm your host Sam Stanford, and as always, stay curious. Everything Steam would like to give a shout out to Anchor by Spotify for sponsoring our podcast along with Ben Cell Music for providing our show with intro, outro, and advertisement background rhythm.